Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Prindeville, CEO and Chief Solutioneer at Upstream. And today is another special episode as I'm really excited to have my friend and colleague, Miriam Gordon, on the show. Miriam, it's great to have you here. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. I'm so excited to talk about this topic that we've talked about many times before. <laughs> so today we're going to dive into extended producer responsibility for packaging or, or EPR as it's commonly called. And I know we have a sophisticated audience, but for those who are just hearing this for the first time, uh, EPR is a policy tool that makes uh, producers, companies responsible for mitigating the environmental impacts of their products and packaging. And specifically, we're going to get into how we seem to have reached the tipping point here in the United States to get packaging EPR passed. And we also want to talk about, and at Upstream, we want to ensure that EPR becomes a tool to achieve a circular economy for packaging that follows the waste reduction hierarchy of reduce and reuse first before recycling. Um, but we're in a situation now where we have most stakeholders are agreeing that we need corporations to have some skin in the game when it comes to green design and taking their packaging back for reuse or recycling. But the devil's in the details. And, and more importantly, we now have 30 years of history to look back on, and, and we can see that where EPR has been implemented, it's true that it's effectively increased recycling, uh, in large part because the governing legislation typically includes recycling targets. But unfortunately, EPR really hasn't put a dent in reducing overall packaging generation and packaging waste. Or, and, and that goes further upstream to the amount of natural resources that we take from the planet for packaging. Now, we're going to get into all that and how EPR can support source reduction and reuse. But I kind of want to start with how we got here. And Miriam, I thought it might be good for us to start about the first time that you heard about the concept of EPR. You know, I, for me... I remember I can remember that moment, and I was a freshman in college, and, and we had been assigned uh, Paul Hawkins' Ecology of Commerce <laughs> as in a freshman seminar class, and I was kind of blown away by the idea. But but what about you? Oh yeah, it was probably around the same time, Matt. Um, it was for me. It was in the early two thousands. I was working for the state of California at the California Coastal Commission in the department that runs uh, California's coastal cleanup. In, uh, program. And I had a German intern um, working for me. <laughs> and she was disgusted, basically, with how we we're managing waste in the US really shocked. Wow. And she told me all about the German Green Dot program, which is, uh, which is one now one of the programs that uh, comes from their producer responsibility for packaging um, law. And, uh, and, you know, is a, a way that uh, German producers are recovering products, and um, really recycling a lot more than even in California, we were recycling. So she mm -hmm. told me all about that. And, and then I started looking for resources and uh, to learn more about this idea of extended producer responsibility. And I found um, a book by Betty Fishbein from Inform. It was all about extended producer responsibility. I remember I was on a ski vacation. I had broken my ankle. I was, <laughs> I was, I was laid up on a couch in total pain, and I was reading this book, 
And I got so fired up about the concept um, of connecting producers who have no responsibility in the U.S. for their products once they became waste. And the whole idea of making them responsible for their products from cradle to grave just really clicked with me because I could understand all the reasons why um, they're not having that full life cycle responsibility was making products hard to not design for recycling and and um, not internalizing the environmental costs of their products. It just, it all made so much sense to me. And then yeah. it led me into a deep dive in researching the German, which was the original EPR uh, packaging program. And uh, yep. as I began to research all that, that's where I learned about Upstream um, and started reading <laughs> papers that uh, Bill Sheehan um, and Helen Spiegelman were producing at the time. And that's how I met you all. <laughs> that That's amazing. You know, I... I had a, a, a similar experience, not the not the broken ankle uh, at, on the ski vacation, but you know I remember reading this book as I mentioned, uh, Paul Hawkins' Ecology of Commerce. It was the first time I was really introduced to that this idea that producers should have responsibility for their products and their packaging post the point of sale and even post consumer. And that they were the ones that really should be figuring out how to design products with the environment in mind and how to take them back and do something useful with them at the end of their useful life. And I was blown away by that. And it was I think it was one of the reasons, like this book and this idea was one of the reasons that I decided to shift from a creative writing major, which is what I was doing when I started college. I wanted to be the next Jack Kerouac uh, and really to drill down into environmental uh, studies and environmental policy. That's really what became my passion in college and what I dove into. And, you know, I had the, this opportunity. My first job out of college was working as an, as an organizer at the Natural Resources Council of Maine in my home state of Maine. Shout out to all our friends at NRCM, which is, they're the, the lead environmental watchdog group, uh, powerhouse organization in my home state here. And uh, my very first day on the job, I was given the assignment of helping to organize a press conference on a first in the nation EPR bill for electronic waste. And I can remember, you know, I'd never done anything like this before, but I can remember being at the state house. I was completely, you know, starstruck and blown away and, and putting, taking this computer that, it, that had been pulled apart and putting it out on this table and, and, and putting little diagrams about where all the toxic chemicals were in this, in this computer and what they did and how they were harmful to human health and the environment. And there was a reporter that was there and, you know, it's like my first day on the job and she saw me organizing this thing and she comes over and she immediately starts asking me questions, of course, on things that I knew nothing about. And I was frantically looking for my boss in that moment, but I, I can remember that. And I, and I, that's also how I got connected to Upstream is that as part of that build process, we needed experts um, on extended producer responsibility. And there were only a handful of them at that time uh, in the United States and, 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 and the folks at Upstream uh, were, were part of them. And so we brought Bill to Maine and, and he testified and helped us kind of get all of our, our testimony organized and the rationale organized for why we needed it. And kind of the rest is history there. I've been working on this stuff ever since then. That's, that's really cool. Um, I kind of was on a a bit of a similar track when I was at the California Coastal Commission. I was looking for 
uh, you know, I had connected with uh, Charles Moore, who was a um, scientist who made the world aware of the whole problem of the Pacific gyre and the amount of trash floating on the surface, amount of plastic floating on the surface of the ocean. I connected with him through the boating program that I was working on at the time and uh, pollution prevention for um, boating. And um, uh, because I was you know, in the state government, I actually helped Charlie to sort of put, help put him on a roadshow, a speaking tour, and just raising awareness about the problems of plastic pollution in the marine environment. And um, it became my mission while working for the state to, to articulate solutions uh, to the plastic pollution problem that would turn off the tap because, you know, we were already working on coastal cleanup and cleaning up the problem. Um, and, the, you know, we could see every year after coastal cleanup day, I would go back to the same beach I cleaned up and it was, you know, polluted again with all kinds of plastic yeah crap. And um, so I was searching for uh, ways to turn off the tap and, um, and EPR just resonated with me because it held the promise of, um, you know, if producers were responsible either financially or physically for their products, once they become waste, that responsibility was, we all thought in theory was going to make them design products to be less wasteful, I thought maybe less disposable and more reusable and eliminate the unnecessary stuff. And so I was such a big fan that as I started writing action plans and strategies for the state on how to address what we called marine debris back then, plastic pollution, now EPR was one of the top policy priorities that I articulated for the state. And then I was so passionate about source reduction um, that I actually left working for the state and went to an NGO, Clean Water Action, uh, so that I could be more of an advocate for the solutions. I became the California Director of Clean Water Action and developed a whole waste prevention program there. And, you know, continue to uh, work with allies in California on getting a whole bunch of policy priorities, working on educating legislators and educating our coastal activist community about EPR amongst uh, other plastic pollution legislative approaches. And so I was a big fan, and I think that's how we ultimately connected. Um, That is, that's right. That's right. You created, you brought me in because you were, you were connecting also with the plastic pollution community. Do you want to talk about the Cradle to Steering Committee? Yeah, well, this is, you know, I think the Upstream had done this incredible job organizing local governments around the country, uh, helping to organize them into these product stewardship councils. There are, I think there are 15 or even 18 of them now. Um, and our friends at the Product Stewardship Institute were also really involved in helping to get these these associations of, of local uh, government officials together to, to advocate for extended producer responsibility and product stewardship. But 
one of the things that we saw that was missing was, and one of the things that had given us so much success in Maine was the fact that we had a strong NGO community and expertise uh, in, in addition to supporting the city governments. And that that was really the trifecta, I mean, the trifecta being uh, strong state government support for EPR as well. So, you know, we had a, a, a series of about uh, seven or eight years where Maine was the, we were able to pass uh, half a dozen first in the nation extended producer responsibility laws for things like electronic waste and, and mercury containing products, uh, light bulbs, uh, batteries, thermostats, uh, and then paint and, and moving into carpet. And a big part of why we were able to do that is, is because of that trifecta of support amongst local governments, the environmental community, and a st strong state government support for EPR. And that was the same thing that was happening in California. And I remember you and I talking about this and that, you know, what if we could replicate this and do this um, around the country? And we had this idea to, to start a coalition that, that we started called the, the Cradle 2 Coalition that Upstream ended up uh, facilitating and leading of, of state-based advocates, you know, working in conjunction with the city government officials and businesses in those states to run really effective EPR campaigns at the state level. And we had a lot of success with that. But I think the, the big shift, you know, I think, and before we get into packaging here, I, I do want to talk about, you know, the hopes and dreams that we had <laughs> for, for EPR, because, you know, back then, I mean, I, I had also read uh, right around the, the, the early part of my career, uh, Bill McDonough's book, Cradle to Cradle. And, mm -hmm. and I was really inspired about, you know, this is, this is the kind of economy that we need to, to create where we are designing and managing the, the natural resources that we take from the planet. We're designing our products and we're managing them from cradle to cradle so that the products of today and, and the packaging of today becomes the products and packaging of tomorrow. But I felt like we, we really needed strong policies to create the, the enabling conditions for that to happen. Like it wasn't just going to happen voluntarily. You know, some companies were going were gonna to do it because, you know, they felt some competitive advantage in, in being sustainable. But if we wanted to do it at scale, we really needed uh, public policy. And, and in my mind, like EPR was the foundational policy for how to do that because the foundational principle is, producers are responsible for their products <laughs> and their packaging. Right. And, and so I, I think I initially, I thought it was going to be a bit of a panacea. What, what about you? Well, in terms of uh, EPR for packaging, I thought, um, I thought it held so much promise. Uh, and I did think at the time it was going to be a panacea. I have learned, as you said, that the devil is in the details. But <laughs> but what I thought was, um, first of all, I'd been schooled uh, in college about, you know, the downside of um, externalizing the costs of waste. And um, I was really excited uh, by the idea of when, when the polluter pays, so to speak, or producers are financially responsible for uh, what happens to their products all through the life cycle, even to end of life in the waste management side, uh, that that would internalize the costs of uh, the waste and that um, it wouldn't be just, you know, uh, it wouldn't be unaccounted for in how they uh, design their products. Um, yep. 
So that was one thing that really excited me. The other was I, I really thought it could improve recycling. Historically, uh, recycling's run by municipalities and taxpayer funded, and they've always been underfunded um, and uh, fractured and, and, and lacked any good coordination between the producers the municipalities and the recyclers. And so I thought if the producers had more control over the program and responsibility for meeting certain metrics for recycling or performance targets, that they would maybe even design more efficient recovery and recycling systems. I actually thought this might appeal to Republicans because it's like privatizing the system. And I'm not sure that that ever happened. Um, And finally, the thing that I was most excited about was that it would result in reductions in waste generation because they would be paying for the waste. Uh, If producers are paying for the waste, they would be incentivized to generate less less waste. Um, And then I dove into research over time, looked uh, very heavily at the European uh, system of EPR for packaging, which was um, actually called a program to prevent packaging waste. Prevention was the key um, term used to describe the goal of EPR in, in the German and the EU packaging directive. And so I thought, well, for sure, they're going to achieve prevention of packaging waste. They're going to uh, see less packaging products being generated over time. And actually, my research and deep dive into what the EU program was accomplishing showed um, actually that that is not what has happened. Each decade, they did an analysis of, you know, how much waste was being generated, um, like from 2000 to 2008, and then 2009 to uh, 2019. And at both of those inflection points, Um, The European program showed that waste generation per capita, sorry, packaging products per capita were increasing at a steeper curve than actually the recycling rate was increasing. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think this is the big thing that that we didn't know when Upstream got got into packaging in a big way. And this is really going back um, just over 10 years ago. I joined Upstream in, in 2011, and, and this was right around the time that the biggest uh, bottled water company in, in North America, Nestle Waters, had come out and said that they were going to support uh, EPR for packaging. And it all of a sudden, there was this sense of urgency behind it that that there wasn't there before. Like we at Upstream and, and a lot of the other organizations that we mentioned that were focused on EPR had really been focused around EPR for hazardous products, you know, getting producers to right. pay for the collection and recycling of products that really weren't even being collected and recycling, you know, things like TVs and, and cell phones and so on. And so getting into packaging, you know, what drove this urgency was Nestle just got very serious. And I think that we can credit our friends um, at As You Sow and others that were putting shareholder pressure on these companies to do something about the fact that 80% of their, of their, of their bottles wound up in either the garbage or the environment. Um, and, you know, I think the beverage companies were looking at, well, they, they didn't want to do deposits. Uh, and, you know, with EPR, they could get the rest of the consumer packaged goods industries involved in helping to pay for the entire recycling system. And they said, well, this is probably the lesser of two evils. So so let's support uh, EPR. 
I, I thought at that moment that Nestle was going to bring all these other brands to the table. You know, we, we jumped in into the, the process. Uh, we, we organized a number of, of stakeholder dialogues. We did one with city government officials on developing a set of principles that we wanted for EPR for packaging. We did a similar process with the, the solid waste and recycling industry. We had all the big players um, in that industry participating in that dialogue. And we co-facilitated a process with brands um, and retailers around EPR. And I really thought some of the big companies were going to step up and, and come to the table. But, you know, after four or five years of advocating, everything just kind of fizzled out. Yeah. And I think the, the big reason was that, you know, when we would talk to the legislators, they were like, I have a blue cart. Like, <laughs> you know, why do I care about who, who pays for recycling? Like, this is not a problem. And it, it was at the time that, you know, plastic pollution was still, you know, not a big issue out there in, in the world. Like people weren't sharing these images all over all over social media. And I think we recognized at that moment that plastic pollution was the, the poster child for why we needed EPR and other corporate accountability for waste. And we kind of walked away from EPR, but we got heavily involved in building the rationale for that by helping to build up the break free from plastic movement. Yeah. But, you know, now now we're in this different place. Right. So, you know, I was hearing, you know, whisperings uh, from the brands that that they were leaning towards figuring out how to support EPR for packaging in this country. And I think, you know, the big drivers have been the, the plastic pollution movement documenting all of these brands all over all over the world Absolutely. and showing that they're the, the biggest polluters um, on the planet, you know, as far as plastic pollution is concerned. Yep. And then the other thing that I think has been a big driver is China. You know, China was mm -hmm. accepting all of our low value recyclables and the low value plastics and the, you know, the city governments around the U.S. and, and elsewhere could make a little bit of money selling those low value plastics. And as soon as China said, nope, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, that drove up the cost, and now it became more expensive to recycle these products than than to landfill or incinerate them, and that that's created this economic crisis as well. And so, out of that is this opportunity to get EPR passed. But as you and I are are coming at this, it's like so we've seen the limitations, right? Because it's increased recycling rates, but it hasn't put a dent in packaging waste generation. And that is, that's where the impacts on the planet are really come from, coming from. Yes, they're coming from downstream with the pollution, but there are also all these upstream impacts from creating the packaging in the first place. And if we're not reducing that, we're not really helping the planet out. Yeah. And so, you know, I think this is where we're at is trying to figure out how, how we make EPR as a tool to do that as well. That's true. Um, the way I see it is that people like Charles Moore really uh, at Algalita really raised the world's awareness of the plastic yeah. pollution problem. That led to um, a, a whole movement, which we were uh, at the you know in on the ground floor of creating the break free from plastic pollution um, movement that evolved from this huge amount of scientific research and awareness about the problem. And then the uh, China, the China um, sword, or the you know closing of their um, of their doors to accepting our dirty, contaminated uh, products that we couldn't figure out how to recycle, that local government right. couldn't figure out right. how to recycle, um, and just shipped and just exported the problem to to Southeast Asia. Um, 
And that that just also blew open the myth that these products that were never designed to be recyclable uh, were yeah. being recycled. And I think for me at this point, the question is so you know, really local government in the U.S. has struggled to find markets for um, these materials that are contaminated and, and designed, you know, mixed materials, paper and, and uh, plastic and aluminum all being melded together in, in these uh, packaging formats that are hard to separate and all of that stuff being really hard to recycle made it challenging for local government to to do anything decent. And yep. so we've learned not the failure of local government because they, they've really, I think, done the best they can with the materials that uh, have markets for recycling. Um, the challenge is connecting the design. Um, and yeah. so the question really for me is, well, if if the producers are now in charge of the program, will they do a better job than local government? And how much control over the program should producers have? And what are the metrics by which they will be held accountable? What are the performance goals? And will we actually ever achieve prevention of packaging, you know, reduction in the amount of single-use packaging being created. Yeah. And that's where yeah. the details matter a lot. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. You know, I, I think that one of the big challenges is that, and I, I remember Michael Washburn, who is the former sustainability director from Nestle Waters saying this at a, at a packaging conference a decade ago, but he said, you know, in my global supply chain for materials, like why why would I want a city government or a local government in, in the middle of that supply chain? And I think that, you know, if you look at one perspective, and I'm not saying 100% agree with this perspective, but mayors and city councils, they often look at, at, at garbage and recycling as line items on their budget, right? Yeah. And their priority is get it out of the city <laughs> as cheaply as possible. That's the priority there. And, and so it's not about thinking about building a circular economy or materials management or all these things that, in theory, companies have said they care about, right? So every major corporation that sells consumer goods in the world has at least paying lip service to the fact that they should help be helping to grow and even finance a circular economy for materials. But, you know, these systems that are in place, you know, it, it's like... If they don't have that responsibility for designing green on the front end, and if they don't have that responsibility, the cost of managing those products on the back end, and if they're also not being held to the right kinds of targets that guide the behavior that's actually good for the planet, like recycling is 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 good, it's better than landfilling and incinerating, it's certainly better than litter, but it is nowhere near enough. Like if right. we really want to reduce the stress on on the planet from commerce, as you and I know, we have to start reducing the natural resources that we take from the planet in order to fulfill our wants and needs. Right. And a big part of the unnecessary uh, uh, stuff that we're taking from the planet is all this single-use packaging, right? right? Use it up once, throw it in a bin, you know, who, who cares what happens to it? You know, that's the part that we need to shift. And EPR, you know, and, and I know, you know, you and I have had lots of discussions and even debates about this over the years as to what is EPR's role in helping to do that. I think where it's been implemented, we have seen that it, it does, it, we do have higher recycling rates, but they haven't put a dent in the waste generation rates. What do we need to do to change that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, uh, regulatory programs uh, generally are only as good as the performance metrics that are built into them. And even then, uh, yeah. sometimes, you know, we have a hard time getting industry and producers to meet the, the metrics of program, which goes to, you know, how much control do you, do you give producers in the system? So the, the metrics uh, by which success have been measured in almost all EPR packaging programs to date have been different material types have to meet different percentages of uh, recovery and and recycling. And that's sort of the, the framework that's been used around the globe in EPR for packaging. And there hasn't been any programs to date, uh, except for maybe in France, one uh, EPR model where there is an actual target for how much packaging has to be reduced at the source, how much packaging, single-use packaging has to be eliminated. Um, so in addition to the recycling and real recycling, you know, there's a lot of debate over what is recycling and we can get into that, but you know, yeah, we're, we're looking at yeah. recycling that's truly circular and truly ends the, uh, or reduces the use of virgin materials. But on the reduction side, on uh, the top two R's, reduce and reuse, we actually need some targets built into our policies. So, um, as you know, um, over the last six months, a group of NGOs, upstream included, have uh, have gotten together and designed our our dream EPR packaging policy. And it's a model bill. Um, the initiative uh, to collaborate on this was um, led by Beyond Plastics and Conservation Law Foundation. And I participated upstream. We had other groups involved, um, Earth Justice and uh, PERGS, NYPERG and um, Safer States working on the toxics. So together, and others, um, Gaia and others. And together we developed this model bill that um, has actual rates and dates and performance metrics around um, reducing the quantity of disposable packaging being used. Um, and so we're looking at, we're asking state legislators to build in some performance metrics on the percentages of single use packaging not just plastic, but all single-use packaging that will be reduced over time. And that reduction could be achieved by eliminating unnecessary packaging, by reducing the quantity of packaging used in relation to the volume of the product, could be, you know, eliminating things like in food service, like unnecessary utensils and, you know, not giving people things that they don't need because <laughs> they have it in their home already. So all kinds of ways yeah. to reduce, but another way to reduce packaging is to make it reusable. So there's so there's elimination and transitioning to reusable. And then a way to incentivize that is in the collection of fees when producers have to pay into a system to fund the whole recycling and reuse infrastructure. The fees are eco-modulated and you pay um, more for uh, the things that are less recyclable and don't have recycled content, you pay nothing for packaging that's reusable. So that's yep. another way to incentivize it. And then 
what happens with the fees once they are collected um, is also another place where we can, again, incentivize refill and reuse. So in most models, after paying for the administrative costs of the program, the producer fees generally go back into uh, the recycling to fund recycling infrastructure. And while we want to continue to do that, we also want a percentage of those fees to go into building up the refill and reuse infrastructure. And also, it's a priority for us to see some of the fees go back to uh, paying municipalities and the tribes for, for their role in the recycling system. But what's really new is using fees to fund the refill and the reuse infrastructure. Yeah, and just, you know, I think helping to paint the picture for what this looks like for real people, what we're talking about here are consumable products, right? This is the the food food packaging, this is the beer and soda bottles that you buy. You know, if you look into your garbage bin or you look into your recycling bin and you look at the packaging, <laughs> that's that's the stuff that we're talking about. And, you know, the idea for the future here is that we want to start getting more and more of, of the way that these consumable goods are delivered, that that's done in reusable, refillable packaging. And so, you know, that packaging, of course, has to be collected from us. It's got to be taken to a, a washing and, and refilling hub, and then it's sent back to the producer to be to be filled and, and put back on the store shelves. And the great thing is, is that we've got examples of this. Like this is actually the way <laughs> that a lot of the consumable products that we that we bought, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, was done. It was done through these washing and, and refilling systems. All the commercial beer, all the soda in this country uh, was served that way. And it still is in many parts around the world. And so now what we're looking to do is how do we do that for products that we buy at the grocery store, at the pharmacy? How do we do that for takeout food and coffee and things like that? And how do we create the systems and the infrastructure that can have that just be the new normal and have it be convenient for, for all of us as we're going about our daily lives? Absolutely. Reuse is so, so important. It's just, it's eliminating so many of those impacts all across product life cycles. That is, that's why I joined Upstream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, I remember we were having this conversation with, with our friends in Europe, and I remember very clearly them saying, you know, we failed with EPR in Europe because we only had the recycling targets. We talked about source reduction and reuse. That's in the preambles, and that's, you know, it, it's kind of given lip service in the, in the governing legislative documents. But the targets were around recycling. And so the progress has been made around recycling over the last 30, 40 years there, but there's been virtually no progress on, on packaging reduction right. and, and an increasing reuse. And that's the problem that they are working to solve right now. And, and they've, got a, they've got all these amendments to the circular economy package. We just talked to our friends in Europe just the other day again, and all of that stuff is moving forward. But here in the United States, you know, we're just starting to get EPR for packaging going. And unfortunately, I, my, my big fear is that if we, if we aren't able to get source reduction and reuse targets and policies incorporated into EPR, that 20, 30 years down the road, we're going to be in that exact same place. It's like we'll have made more progress on recycling. Yes, we'll be recycling more. Yes, it'll be more seamless when you're out and about. And it'll look a lot more similar from California to Texas 
but we won't have really actually reduced any packaging. Yeah, well, I'm, I think that is the big challenge for our, our movement. We really need people at the local level asking more of their politicians that we don't want to replicate the mistakes of the past uh, where we um, just focus on recycling. And um, there's a, you know, with the producers now at the table uh, for a variety of reasons, we see producers um, actually putting forward um, their own versions of EPR packaging policy um, that don't have any any source reduction targets in them, any reduce, reuse targets, and very little uh, sort of guardrails in place to hold them accountable for what happens if they don't meet <laughs> the targets for recycling. Yeah. That That's, you know, we are at an inflection point where we could you know, have another 10 years of um, failed policies in terms of recycling and never addressing the key priorities of reduce and reuse. And we've seen that, you know, we have two yeah. two bills that were enacted last year, EPR for packaging bills, the first ones in the US, Oregon and, and Maine. And um, they, start, they start to address the idea of uh, reduce and reuse in, in these eco-modulated fees and um, maybe some spending of the fees on, you know, waste prevention grants and things like that. But we don't see these real performance measures of, you you know, have to reduce packaging overall by a certain amount over a certain period of time. Yeah. So we need yeah. people to be uh, in the game and demanding that of their legislators and then we also need other policy tools because this may not be, you know, EPR may not get us there. So we're going to need yep. other ways to eliminate single-use packaging. And we can talk about, you know, you mentioned our policy ladder. Like we're working very hard uh, to support people at the local level to pass laws that um, make it so that when you sit down at a restaurant, you're never served with disposable foodware to, you know, eliminate disposables in takeout and delivery and unnecessary accessories. These are the kinds of policies that we're working on. And also to bring back refillables in other spaces through policy, like uh, beverage, bottled beverages, which used to be how we consumed um, beverages in bottles that were used over and over again. And also for consumer packaged goods and um, transportation, packaging, e-commerce. So there's so many opportunities to bring reusables and refillables into the marketplace with policy. And we, we kind of are want to be all in on all of them to ensure that we get there. Yeah. I have said that we're kind of in this honeymoon phase around reuse where where a lot of the big companies are paying lip service to it. There's a lot of, of, of talking going on <laughs> uh, and interest. But, you know, this is a situation where I had a, a colleague that I was talking to the other day that they said, yeah, you know, I think this is a place where policy is going to follow practice. And it, for some types of reuse uh, systems and services, we do have a lot of practice, right? Uh, On-site dining, uh, you know, the business case has been made so clear by you, Miriam, in starting Rethink Disposable and, and, and that project really showing the, proving the business case for getting disposables off of uh, on-site dining. 
And we have these examples in the beverage industry. We've got, you know, refillable beer in Ontario and Quebec. You know, 84% of the beer sold in, in Ontario is in, is in refillable bottles. We have examples, you know, right here in North America for how to do this at scale. But in a lot of other areas, we don't, right? So the, the food products we buy at the grocery store, you know, we have some small scale models around reusable to-go containers and reusable coffee cups. Um, but we, the, a lot of that stuff hasn't been done at scale across cities and across the United States. And I think this is a, a challenge for us because, you know, the brands, like they can see recycling, right? Like they can see how, okay, I sprinkle some money in around here and we can, we can invest in better recycling infrastructure, we can get this done. But they're operating at the level of, of things as they are today, as opposed to how things could be. And I think that is, that's a big part of our challenge is to really, you know, get working with the brands uh, in, in figuring out, like, how do we pilot more of these reuse systems and services so that they can get familiar with it, so that they can understand the cost modeling that's associated with it, and the benefits to them, not just for, you know, meeting their environment and sustainability goals as corporations, but in if they build that infrastructure that they'll actually be able to save money uh, in, the, in the long term by doing it. So there's going to be a short, short term pain, but long term gain uh, if we can if we can get this done. And I think for us, part of the challenge is we need we need more political pressure on these companies and on legislators to help move these ideas forward. Yeah. And as we have both recognized um, our particular role in this space is to help pollinate these these policies by showcasing exactly what reuse and refill looks like. We're we're spending a lot of time in our communications and outreach showcasing all the new innovations and the new entrepreneurs and the new systems that are coming to your community soon. They're already in mine. Yep. I live in San Francisco where there's uh, where we can actually, you know, uh, see, touch and feel these systems. I get my milk in a uh, reusable glass bottle that I pay deposit on from Strauss Creamery. I get my takeout orders through dispatch goods in reusable stainless steel containers, you know, all kinds of ways that um, entrepreneurs are innovating at the local level. And it's very hard to get a reuse policy enacted if a local legislator or state legislature doesn't know what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and also, absolutely. but when we have a policy that incentivizes reuse through price signals, that can really help drive the escalation of these systems, uh, these returnable, reusable systems in communities. So we need to be working at the same time. I say this all the time on cross-pollination, um, bringing the vision to legislators and local communities of what reuse systems look like, and then getting policies enacted that help to accelerate this innovation. 100%, 100%. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think one of the big barriers here is 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 vision and and people not being able to see, touch, and taste <laughs> how things could could be like. And as soon as you get those, you know, as soon as you hear these stories or you actually get um, a new reuse service in your community and you experience it and you recognize just how much better that that experience is across the board, right? right. Um, and recognizing what that could mean for the environment if we started to consume more like this, 
Um, the more people that we get excited around this vision, you know, the more people that are going to help us go out there and co-create it. And I, I actually want to give a shout out to the innovators all across the country because it's not just um, you know progressive environmental San Francisco where these systems are are popping up. Um, people right. in communities yeah. all across the country um, are excited about changing how we deliver products to consumers, and I'm reminded of one of the first times I visited you at your home in Maine and I was shocked when we stopped at your dry cleaners and you picked up your dry cleaning in a reusable dry cleaning <laughs> bag. I was like, Hey, I've never <laughs> seen that before. Rural Maine. Yeah, yeah. What, what a great <laughs> idea. Right? And we see, these, we see these great ideas popping up, you know, fueled by entrepreneurs and communities all across the country. It's so exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Miriam, this has been a lot of fun and we need to do this more often. Just hang out together and press record because this has been been awesome. And I just want to thank you for the influence that you've had on my own thinking on this over the years. Like I'm a reuse warrior because of Miriam Gordon. She was the first person that really started planting all these seeds in my brain, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So appreciate you and all you do for Upstream and all you do for, for the movement that we're helping to, to support and build. Yeah. So it absolutely goes both ways, Matt. And it's it's such a pleasure to be on this journey with you and learning so much about culture change and communication. Like you're teaching this old policy wonk new tricks, and I really <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we got a great team too that's helping us figure all this out, and really appreciate um, everybody on the upstream team and our board for helping us just do this work day in and day out. So thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next week. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.